0: Reimagining Opportunities for Innovative Solutions podcast series. My name is Ken McGill. I am a solution-focused care senior scientist here at OPECA. After serving almost two decades for a statewide children's system of care, it was realized during my tenure that so much more is needed with regards to innovative practices and the use of technology, especially around uh, assessments and bringing assessments back to the point of care much too often people in care were being assessed over and over again just to fulfill an obligation rarely were those assessments directly used in care not to mention used in real time in order to track successful outcomes i've seen firsthand as a clinician where assessments were just being done to check off a box. But let me ask everyone now, what is the purpose of an assessment, if not for the purposes of treatment, to see which treatment would best serve that individual and or family? And here at Opika, our person-centered intelligence solutions allows for assessments to be used directly in care and it strengthens collaboration among systems. And speaking of system of care, the TCOM tools that were developed by Dr. John Lyons almost 30 plus years ago, which are used in every system throughout the United States and beyond, uh, in terms of the Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management or TCOM tools, to put together innovative ways to develop individual care plans, Dr. Lyons saw firsthand, and for my two decades of knowing John Lines, seen firsthand how these tools should be part of the work that gets done. And I especially uh, am fortunate to have learned over the time knowing John that if we define the work as transformational, not necessarily the services or the amount of time being spent, but transforming assisting those in transforming their lives. Collaboration in a collaborative way, especially collaborating amongst those individuals we serve. Highlighting outcomes from the beginning, middle and end of care and managing the data. And managing the data in real time is exactly what you'll hear Dr. John Lines, who's the director for the Center of Innovations for Population Health at the University of Kentucky. You'll hear, John talk about how Opeka has been the leader in this process of bringing transformational collaborations and outcomes management so that we're going to shift. We're going to shift from systems of care to systems that care. So for the time that we spent together, you'll hear Dr. Lyons highlight how Opeka is leading the charge. And it is our distinct privilege and honor here at OPIKA to introduce Dr. John Lyons, the director for the Center for Innovation and in Population Health at the University of Kentucky. And John, you've researched and published so many things. An author of books regarding, especially the community metrics, uh, and an upcoming TCOM book that I think it'd be great if we can find out when that's coming. Uh, and uh, you're the creator of the community metrics tools that are used across the globe. You are a facilitator of TCOM Conversations and you're a visionary where you take TCOM and you've created a worldwide collaboration that continues every single day to grow. So thank you very much, Dr. Lyons for, for joining us.
1: Great to be here. Always a pleasure to work
0: with you, Kim. Is, thank you. and and I'm seeing uh, a bunch
1: Mike, of friends and colleagues jumping on. So hello, everybody.
0: There we go. <laughs> and it, it will be a lot of people we know in the uh, that are attending here. Here's the quick, I've known John for um, 17 years uh, after serving a statewide children's system of care and 15 of those years uh, attending and presenting at the TCOM or CANS conferences uh, across the country. It has a, been a true honor to be a recipient of the Parade Foundation's Outcomes Champion Award and also serving as this year's TCOM conference chairperson. So honestly, this is a, an opportunity that um, moving over to Opica to be able to do TCOM 365, not just the three days during the conference, but all year round. So this is exciting job. And our mission here at Opica is to put the person at the center of care, convert data into meaningful information, provide feedback on progress, model for what works for whom, and cultivate collaboration. And part of the collaboration includes these webinars in the town hall with Dr. John Lyons, um, so that we can share and, um, and, and be part of a larger collaboration to best serve those individuals and families. And here at OPICA, we have a person-centered intelligence solutions uh, approach around flexible assessment collection, but in particular the CANS, but other set, uh, assessments as well that are fully secure, but it's there to to allow for collaboration in care planning, securely sharing enough information across different systems and agencies, and making sure that this is done in real time, outcomes monitoring for that person or persons and populations being served. So John, I I gotta tell you, I was digging up a couple of things, including an old newsletter. Your journey has been one of amazement, and uh, it'd be great if we all can learn about where this all started, where it's all been and what the future um, of TCOM is. Yeah, been.
1: so, I mean, where it all started actually was on my uh, postdoc at the University of uh, Chicago, where I was one of the first NIMH funded uh, postdoctoral fellows in mental health services research. And I quickly learned that there was very little mental health and mental health services research. It was mostly, you know, there might be a diagnosis Uh, that nobody believed meant anything other than somebody want to get paid. You might have age, gender, race. Uh, And other than that, you had very little information about people, but a lot of information about what we did with people. And actually for the past 50 years, people have been using service delivery as a proxy for help. And so I set up about 40 years ago to to change that, to say, wait a minute, how do you put people into that work and what I discovered along that journey is you can only do that if it's meaningful to the people who have to do it. And so the the evolution of TCOM was really about going from getting large data sets that are policy relevant that include full representation of people into, wait a minute, how do you actually represent people? in the process of care so that the care becomes about them and not about the care and so that's where person-centered kind of thinking comes into and the the concept of that is is um about making people full partners which is why there's a consensus-based assessment process but it really got going in in full when in when i worked with the state of uh, illinois around their residential reform and we really learned a lot about how to redesign systems from a person-centered perspective Um, and it's evolved since then so the concept of TCOM was first named in the the book we're addressing the emperor Um, and at the time it was it stood for total clinical outcomes management and the reason for that at that time was because the debate in the field was between quality management and outcomes management and so I wanted to distinguish that this was about outcome management, not about quality management. And the basic difference is one is about managing process and the other is about managing impact. And But what we've learned in the last 15 years is you can't manage process and affect and impact unless you have a very tight relationship. And so it only really works like in evidence-based practices where you can actually manage fidelity to evidence-based practice and expect it to have impact. But in standard care, it doesn't matter if you, schedule a appointment within a week of a hospital discharge you know that doesn't matter and it matters whether you fit it to what people need right and so you can't really manage process and affect impact in general and so there's that debate is over so in 2014 we changed the name to reflect how our approach is different from other approaches and the way it's different is it's focused on personal change so it's transformational And it's focused on collaboration. So that's the person-centeredness of it. And so that's why we renamed it Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, which I know is a mouthful. Um, And there's a lot of other things that are called TCOM. So, oh, well. So there is the Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, for instance.
0: (laughs) Well, that, again, just shows that you were steadfast in your vision around making it always about person-centered and the work that you're doing at the Center for Innovation and Population Health, some of the um, webinars and sessions that I tuned into, truly, there is no box that you're working from. It's truly out of the box, and and uh, and having a vision around um, uh, the whole person is really incredible. Um, can I go back to? There's a setting that I that I kind of get the cat out of the bag where there's an upcoming book on TCOM that. Uh,
1: well, yeah, so so uh, Springer has agreed to publish a TCOM book, and I love Springer because although they don't pay royalties or like a little bit, um, what they do is they sell predominantly to libraries, and once they've sold to libraries, they just release it as a PDF, so you might have gotten the PDF on Communometrics, and that's because it's published by Springer, so I love them. They, they actually have that same philosophy, let's not stiff people on the price of books, let's make them accessible. And so they sell the libraries. That's where they make their money, but then they just give it away. So uh, I'm quite honored that uh, they're going to publish the TCOM opus, <laughs> the, the TCOM text, whatever you call it, the first book that's uh, about transformational collaborative outcomes management. So it's, it's due to the publisher in April. Fantastic. I did it April 1st, which might be ironic to folks, <laughs> but what you should know, April 1st is actually my father's birthday. So we were taught in my family that April 1st was a sacred holiday and not Uh, April 1st.
0: And that's that's how we'll look at it. (laughs) And we also have the upcoming conference. Uh, The last two conferences were actually held uh, virtually. So the impact or use of technology in support of our work uh, through example, we had to do that this past year as well. For um, 2020, Barbara Dunn did an amazing job um, in moving it forward and the team that moved for 2021 where it was supposed to be held in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. And this 2022 is gonna be held where it was supposed to be originally held in New Orleans, Louisiana at September 21st to the 23rd. So uh, we really encourage those folks who are on this call to um, think about attending, but even more so presenting, sharing the work that you're doing. And um, so if you really wanted to look back and say, well, uh, what do I need to share? when When John says he published a book, and um and without royalties and it's all about getting that information, the larger collaborative does just that. So thank you. And yeah, it's I interesting
1: people like to come to I mean that's a nice group of people. I think the the thing I love the most about this work is the collection of people who are committed to it because it's just a bunch of selfless, committed people who care about others and try to do their best to help them. So I have enormous respect uh, for the people who participate.
0: That is an excellent statement and, and um, after serving 17 years out of a 20 year system of care, the reason why I switched over to Opica is having that same respect for the, the founders of Opica uh, with Dr. Kay Cordell and Ken Connect, creating something where it's gonna make the lives of those individuals better, but it's also gonna support the work that gets done. So especially now with the, the given circumstances and the stressors on those who do the work, um, technology is one of those uh, um especially
1: helpful uh when it is about the work well they, uh, ken the pandemic has made it crystal clear that technology is a solution right i think if we learn anything from the tech from the pandemic it's it's the government matters the people matter too and technology is very 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 useful and that's
0: a good point point. and it also brought up the uh the fact around health equity which we'll get to because i think the insights that you have and will share, um, and how across this country and across the globe, how people are recognizing um, the health inequities, but recognizing is only half. The second half is that what are you doing to help to improve and create real health equity for everyone? So thank you, and this. This slide here. When people say they use the CANs tools, I thought it'd be helpful to have the list of all the Community Metrics tools, including the Child Adolescent Needs and Strengths, but the Adult Needs and Strengths assessment for the adult version, for the family version. There's the FAST for so individuals who are um, want to be successful entrepreneurs, the Rise, those who are dealing with crisis, the CAT tool, and those in terms of looking at safe systems improvement is the SSIT. Um, so these are the whole sets, and it really is important when you learn about these tools to get that uh, training um, to get that certification and leads us into all the things that are out there, the boom, if you will, because I've been around long enough. um, um, Got a little bit more seasoned around my hair and et cetera, a little more weight that I claim, uh, don't want to claim to have. Um, But I remember the electronic health records being the the, the big boom, where we still had records in binders and folders and, uh, paper copies. So this has gone a lot further than that. Um, so you're absolutely right, John. But there's a lot of things happening in the TCOM world. There is tcom uh, dot, uh, dot org uh, in terms of where the blog is, the work that gets done at the uh, Center for Innovation of Population Health uh, at the University of Kentucky, the upcoming conferences. It's kind of a one-stop shopping, but it's also a link to the TCOM channel. Maybe this will be a great time because we do have a lot of folks that are joining us and That have been registered, they can click on the subscribe button, Um, and it's really easy to do. Is I always say, if I can do it, uh, everyone can, and it is absolutely free. But it allows for you to gain access to um, the different things that are being shared. One that I like the most, though, is the heuristic of the month. So I'd be curious, John, when when you thought of this, um, and and taking it a step further beyond the traditional social media like Twitter or other things. What was the thinking behind that
1: well the thinking behind the youtube channel was to reach a different audience well the nice thing about youtube is it's free right and so it, it fits the spirit of, i mean they they will put ads on it but but okay i mean that's okay it's so free it's like you don't have to charge people for it and we wanted to find ways to reach a, a larger audience so we did a, an audience survey and we found most of the people we were interacting with their favorite their favorite way of communicating was email. So we knew we were dealing with older people. And so we thought, oh, well, we have to figure out a way to reach a broader audience. So we decided to create the YouTube channel. It's actually turned out really well because uh, it does give a a place where people can go. And if they want to take a deep dive into this, it's all right there. Um, And for those of you who are more auditory learners, it's uh, like a series of podcasts. For those of you who are more visual, you can look at the... uh, at the PowerPoints and the visuals and so forth. So uh, we're pretty excited about the possibility of communicating there. We've got uh, a bunch of people in line to to, uh, to um, collaborate by providing, for instance, research briefs. So we're talking to all the research groups around the country so that they will record and will post uh, briefs on Uh, what they're doing and what their published research is to make it easier. Because, you know, if you're a practitioner or a policymaker, you really don't have time uh, to go and read the article. And sometimes those articles are a little bit dense to read. You know, the, the standards of getting something published in a peer review require a certain level of detail that are really not all that relevant for the, for the, uh, the uh, practitioner or the policymaker. So the research briefs are just a quick way of communicating findings. So uh, the first one was provided by um, Warren Hemp in Scott Leon's uh, lab at uh, Loyola. I think she did a great job of talking about it. That's a really important finding that, it's stuff we sort of knew that if kids are connected to their community, if you remove them from the community, that's not a good thing, Get bad outcomes. If kids are hanging out with other kids, that are not positive in their life, then maybe it actually is better for them to be away from those kids, right? So it's it's things we know, but it documents it with the research, using the cans and so forth. So I think it's important to, to know these things. Actually, we began to shift our decision models to include the presence of strengths in the community as counterindication of removing kids from the community, right? So okay. it's the first strategy to use non Pathology-based information to drive level of care decision making. So I think it's uh, I think there's it's interesting to see all the information and wisdom that's coming out of the collective. So it's uh, two heads are better than one, and ten thousand heads are better than two.
0: See, that was the the first thing I recognized when I went up to the, the first conference in Boston. And saw my first duck boat, but also uh, witnessed <laughs> firsthand when when they were saying, "Just give me a call. Here's my email." And when I actually called or emailed, I got a response, and uh, and then I knew I was in the right spot. And uh, so those who are attending were on the fence about. Um, you know, attending or participating in the TCOM larger collaborative and the upcoming conferences, or if you always wanted to say that you wanted to be on YouTube, uh, getting it, <laughs> getting it done seems to be very easy. So the fact that we are embracing.
1: Next heuristic, by the way, Ken is is so basically what the heuristics are are saying. So heuristics come from the research with on cognitive bias, you know, Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, work. And they're, they're really focused on things that we, uh, ways we think that lead to bias. Mm-hmm. So we've just taken a twist at it and put a strength-based approach on it saying the way we think also influences making good decisions. And so why not create heuristics that support good decision making? So the next one is, I'm I'm really excited about it because it's all relationships are transformational. So the idea that any relationship you have with anybody has an impact on that other and it has impact on you. Oh, wow. And so why not try to make them therapeutic, right? Why not try to make, because it's transformational one way or the other. It's going to, you're going to change you. It's going to change the person you're in a relationship with. Why not try and make it therapeutic? Why not use our relationships to help people become better versions of themselves?
0: Fantastic. And that's where, again, use the data and bringing it forward um, and and, uh, creating the, the move forward is always been about what this larger
1: group has been uh, doing. <laughs> That's and, what I love about a and your, your platform is really sophisticated in that regard.
0: Yeah, this has been a group that I am so honored to be in and they do um, walk the walk and, and really talk the talk. That's why appreciating the, the uh, heuristic of the month and each one seems to get better and better. You can't change what you can't measure. And I know uh, being a clinician myself, uh the, um, when data became that four-letter word but i actually throughout the process of, of talking to folks especially clinicians it's actually 14 letters it is the um, uh, uh, work plus technology if you add those up that's 14 letters that's what data really means so um what you mentioned about uh, the use of decision making uh going back to the the uh how do organizations and and agencies measure change from elements of the can's both strengths and needs and the Do algorithms
1: still get used? Uh, Well, we've gotten away from the word algorithms. Algorithms is the new four-letter word. Um, So, (laughs) you know, I I use the word algorithms first, but Facebook and uh, Google and other folks have destroyed it by uh, making it into something somewhat evil. Um, So we don't use the word algorithms because actually what they mean when they're talking about algorithms is something different than what we mean when we talk about decision support models because we don't think any model makes a decision for anybody. We think that it just gives you information and gives you a recommendation, but you still need to leave the decisions in the hands of people. You need to leave decisions in the hands of the people who those decisions affect. And you want to help people make those decisions, but you don't want to make the decisions for them. So we're Completely against predictive analytics kind of models, but we're very much for using data to support decision making because that's really how you help people improve. It's what what quality care is is increasing the reliability of decisions, and information is fundamental. And it's fascinating for me as an old guy. Uh, we were just talking about pictures when we first signed on, and I I've been at this a, a few decades at this point, right? And so. When I first started out there weren't any computers right I mean the computers were mainframes right? I remember I had a job where we we bought a mini computer and it had a disk drive the size of a of a cake right as a a wedding cake right and you had to you could only fit six months data on at a time and by the time you got a report out you know I ran the reports it would take me over the weekend to run them and it was usually about two years out of date right and so then there's been an evolution. And we started creating EHRs, and back about 10 years ago, EHRs were very, very focused on data capture, uh, but they didn't really focus on data use. And so we actually created, so we ran into this problem where we'd create this um, model of managing care from this person centered, but people couldn't get the information back out. And so what we ended up doing is we uh, created these ethical guidelines for use of the cans. And it was just like, you have to be trained and you have to actually generate reports. If you're a software vendor, you have to generate reports, which is a pathetic thing to have to require. But it was required because at the time, all the systems were really very focused on data capture and they didn't even think much about data use. And so that's changed. And I think uh, Opica is a leader on that that I don't think there's a platform that does a better job of supporting data use in all sorts of different ways, which I think is really important. You know, like like you can, I, uh, for about 20 years of my career, I didn't use the word data. I just called it information because people would get turned off by it. That sort of changed. My experience is in the last five years or so, you can use data again and it's okay. Um, That people, you know, because you get on your phone and you you fill out a Yelp, you know, you, or you, you're trying to figure out what restaurant to go to and you Google it and say, what's near me and let me look at the reviews. And so, so, so people are using data constantly. Um, we're not doing a good job yet of using it in our work, which is on us. I mean, so, I mean, my own personal feeling is that we spend a lot of time requiring people to participate in formal assessments that result in data. We expect providers to collect that data. We expect people to put that data into platforms, and we have an ethical responsibility to use that data because it disrespects the people that you're trying to help if you're taking all this time to do, to collect stuff, and you're simply not using it. So, I think that you know the ethic of this is beginning to shift, and I think I'm not alone in believing that it's it's basically unethical to not use information that you have to the if to the extent that you can to help improve things. Um, and I think that's the frontier. And I think you need to have platforms, data platforms that are quick to. Uh, update that you can do stuff in real time in because yeah. that's the best way to use information. The closer it is to the event, the better it is. And so so in terms of the, your specific question about how do you measure change, you know I've, I always tell people with every single question in TCON, the answer is always it depends, right? And so <laughs> there's all sorts of different ways you can do it because it's really flexible. But one of the things I like is by thinking about the actual needs mm-hmm. and keeping it at a needs level and then looking at actual needs initially, Actual needs ever, because one of the things that we've learned is that, you know, the cans, the ants, and the TCOM tools are measures of people's story. And you don't always get the full story when you first meet somebody. I don't know about anybody else on this call, but I don't tell somebody I first met everything about me. Um, I'm not going to tell you certain things, you being globally the audience, certain things about me. I might tell you if I knew you better. Or as I get to know you, I might share more. That's true of every single relationship in the world, right? And so that's true of any therapeutic relationship as well. And so stories unfold. You know, in our traditional measurement scheme, and I actually even published on this issue back in the day when I was a psychometrician, we had, we called it the therapeutic hook um, mm-hmm. that you had to get, and the saying was you had to get worse before you got better. Because what you saw invariably with a traditional measurement is you start out, Okay, and then you get worse, and then you get better. I call BS on that. I don't think that's actually what's happening. I don't think people are getting worse before they get better. I think it just takes some time before people are able to identify and articulate their needs and strengths. And so you have to build that into your analysis of change. And so I think that initial, actionable, ever-actionable, and then actionable at the last, the latest, or the final Uh, is really the best way to look at outcomes with this kind of approach. Because I think, and when you look at it that way, and I know you have reports in OPECA that allow you to look at it that way, you actually see really robust impact of our system based on ever to last. And what that means to me is we've been dramatically underestimating the impact of our work by forcing us into models where you look initial and later. I see uh, Janet Heckey is making a comment about payment. That's, you're exactly right, Janet. You should be concerned about that because if you're basing value on initial versus last, you're going to misestimate the value of a of an intervention because there is that value of making sure you discover the full story. Now you could make an argument. I think it's a, legit, a legitimate argument partially that, We need to do a better job engaging people quickly so that they reveal themselves sooner, but I think that's impossible. It's sort of like expecting people to implement the CAN successfully on the first attempt. It's not going to happen. It can be an aspiration, but it's not gonna happen. So I think building this this way of thinking about value as an unfolding model, where there's a kind of a discovery process that is more extended than the the start, uh, and then building that into how we look at change is the is the key to how you really embrace
0: that. That really makes it again all about relationships, and relationships are positive. So if we're building relationships with those that we serve, we're doing more than just that. We're actually gathering information, building trust, and mm-hmm. modeling for folks who might Absolutely. not have had it. So that's, that's I think
1: that's probably one of my biggest lessons in my career is that you can't really measure accurately mm-hmm. if you don't have a trusting relationship, right? You just can't. So anybody who's ever done self-report of adolescence knows that in spades, you know. So some yeah. of them go I just draw pretty art forms on their on the bubble sheets and all sorts of stuff. Because
0: absolutely. Like,
1: what are you going to do with this, right? I mean, so yeah. anyway. So
0: that's,
1: that's why true. we really focus on this consensus-based approach because the idea is you're using the process to build trust. You want to make the work and the documentational work all the same stuff. And so you're trying to build processes to take care of. It.
0: Yeah, and that's why I think my last five years and being the lead statewide trainer uh, for a system of care where it, it was all about—it's not the paperwork; it is actually the work that gets done. So this particular um, slide are, are showing person-centered intelligence solutions, and knowing that we really, again, all the CANs tools are in here. But any assessment that gets done, we do—we like you said, John—we bring that information in. We want to use it for. Um, you know, for the purposes of treatment, but also show progress and not just the needs, but also the strengths that are being built. So you see here um, an interesting um, uh, child, Malcolm Little later becomes Malcolm X. And you can see right there, the different pinpoints points around the cans that are being done, the initial cans, the second time, third time, and then up to the current uh, in progress. And when we're filling this information out, it's really with that information being done uh, building relationships. You could see firsthand that the color that you see is going to trigger your knowledge around, well, oh my gosh, there's adjustment to trauma. And if you see the ratings on top, they went from a three, very severe reaction to the trauma down to a one, which is history. This is where we can show progress, type in and share with those individuals that we're serving. And when you think back and read the autobiography of of, um, of, the biography of, of uh, Malcolm X, you can see that there's been a lot of different substance use where we, we make sure that information is protected. But he was in kinship guardian care with his sister Ella. And we can see right here that we're working on a plan to reunify if when his mom gets uh, better um, to reunify this process. It gives this this tool that you've created, this conversation or community metrics versus a psychometric tool, which is done once and once only for diagnosis, diagnosing uh, uh, and purposes of giving a label. This CANS and all the different versions of the TCOM tools are all about showing that this is the work that we do. And we can prevent someone from having to tell their story over and over again. And I think that's the big thing that... Um, I saw happen uh, when I was even the clinical director for a care management organization and what, what this particular uh, amazing product does and what the thinking be- behind this with uh, with Dr. Kate Cordell and Ken Connect was that we don't want someone to have to tell their story over and over again. We want this information to follow. And that's the the, the walk, the walk when it comes to person-centered care. Um, and when you have this and you submit this, and this is being submitted As you can see here in real time, that information gives the team or the care circle uh, the information that's necessary to do the work. And having been part of the system of care, I don't know if this is uh, when you look at the the, the longitudinal process, right, and and, uh, moving forward, um, how often we don't really keep track of the information. We just focus in on that need, which is almost static in time, but it does evolve, you know, we we learn how to deal with different things, and you directed me to uh, Michael Unger, the Canadian um, uh, researcher, social worker, around resiliency and, and getting a better sense of that.
1: Yep. So uh, we're just having a little chat in the chat box, and uh, they're just echoing your notion that you don't you don't want to repeat, force people to repeat their stories, which is absolutely right. And so the way you want to design a system is that the story builds. I mean, think about it. If you're a kid and you have a problem, right? So you I mean, you think about this school shooting, right, it's, you, you began to see how many different times people tell their stories, right? Mm-hmm. So teacher might recognize a problem, refer to the counselor or the principal, and the counselor or principal talks to the kid, yeah, you got a problem, okay, we need to bring in the parents, you know, you got to talk to the parents, and the, yeah, we got a problem, and now we're going to refer you to therapy, you go to the therapy, well, now here's our intake worker, Let's talk about your problems again. Oh yeah, you've got problems now. Let's send you to the your therapist. And so the time by the time you enter care, you've been forced to talk about your problems with five or six different people, right? And so, and then if you have a complex needs and you have multiple providers, you're repeating your story over and over again. So the idea is one person, one assessment, one story, right? And that that's really hard to do, but it's really, really important Important. if we're going to want to have an effective system, because it's the person's story. And that should be the same story everywhere they are.
0: That's an important piece. And that brings to light the work. It's all about that shared vision of what we want to accomplish. So
1: so Thomas asked, and Nolton asked a very important question in the the, uh, chat box. And let me take this on directly, because I think people, and I'll I'll be blunt, Thomas, I, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but people use confidentiality to hide be hide from accountability. Um, if you talk to families, they want people to share their information in a responsible way to help them, right? If you talk to people with any sort of health problems, they want, you know, I have multiple specialists that I'm involved. I want my doctors to talk to each other, right? It's not that I hope oh, Sorry, the urologist can't talk to the neurologist, can't talk to the sleep doctor, can't talk. I mean, that's bullshit, right? So, but we use that because we don't do a very good job of communicating. So HIPAA, all that HIPAA says is it's not your information. It's the person's information and the person has to give you permission to share it. But if you talk to people and you, they understand the purpose of sharing information, you don't have a problem. And so HIPAA gets created as a problem But it's not actually a problem. It's actually an important safeguard to make sure we're doing person-centered stuff, that we actually involve people that we work with. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in in meetings with states and they talk about our data, their data. It's nobody's data. It's a person's data. I mean, it's my healthcare information is my information. Mm -hmm. I choose to share it with who I choose to share it with, but it doesn't make it not my information. It doesn't make it... Anthems, my insurance company's information. They have a storage where they have a bunch of information that they're allowed to share, but it's not their information, it's my information. And I think if you begin to understand information from that perspective, then I think you don't have very many barriers to doing good work. That's right. And you can create barriers, you can make it more difficult for yourself, but you don't really, they're not real, they're artificial.
0: And that's a great way to put it too. That, that they don't want to change, so they, they hide behind that versus what it was really meant and created for. And I think the same thing with electronic health records. Um, housing that information just to have it was not the purpose um, of, of electronic health record. It was to cut down on the paperwork so that this information hopefully will follow someone and easily access it, accessible rather than trying to find the actual folder it's in. Um, but that also becomes a problem with solid information, and uh... absolutely.
1: yeah. So Jerome just said, you know, I have a long way to go for that, and that's, he's absolutely right. So long way to go. But from a legal perspective, you don't have, you don't really have legal barriers. You just have to get consent. You just have to make sure people are fully informed of what you're doing with their data. That's all you got to do. It's actually not very hard.
0: <laughs> we just make it hard because we we. Uh we tend to, as human beings, like to complicate things. And if we make it simple, silly, that acronym, keep it simple, silly, is a great way to look at it. And and this also, I think this next question around uh, value-based care, I think also complicates things where it doesn't necessarily um, need to be complicated. So I'd love to hear what you think about value of applying both communometric tools and TCOM as a framework, uh, which the world is really moving towards value-based care. How do you see the value of applying both yeah too?
1: actually I'm having conversations right now with the CMMI, the uh, Innovations Institute and CMS around this issue because they are growing frustrated with their existing pilots around value-based uh, contracting. I think it might be fair to say I, I don't want to speak for them, but I think they've been at this now for about a decade and they have they don't have anything to point to that say, wow, this is great. And my point to them is that's because the way they've been defining value is is just service system redux. They're just taking the same administrative data sets that I reacted to as not having people in them and Mm -hmm. trying to create an estimation of value from that service receipt kind of data sets, those administrative data sets, which will never work. All it's really doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's not really having an impact. And so I think there is real interest in beginning to think through what are the implications of including person-centered progress into uh, equation around value uh, because you're never gonna get to true value if you're not looking at the transformational aspects of the work. You're just gonna get into who's paying for what kind of arguments, which is where we've been for the last 50 years, 75 years. And so I think there is an awareness that they need to think about things differently. I mean, steering the federal government is like a really big ship, you know, it's a, so changing directions is not exactly an easy task. But I do think, as I was telling them yesterday, they have the data, right? They may not have it in their possession, but it exists, where they could begin to think about things from a sort of person-centered perspective. You know, one of the barriers, of course, is the traditional research view that only objective information is scientific, which I also call bullshit to that. That's simply not true. In fact, oftentimes the most important information involves judgments. And that's true in every aspect of our lives. And so, and it's certainly true in any helping enterprise is that the true change is in fact, the description of a subjective process. So that notion of How do you reliably measure subjective processes? And actually, there's some evidence. There's Steve Hedges did some great research at the University of Chicago demonstrating that actually those measures are more reliable than than instrumentation and physics, right? And when you look at it kind of on a global level, I mean, it's fascinating, but it gets slammed because it's not observable. It has to be collected by a different manner but it can be very reliable as we show with the cans. I mean, the cans is the, and the answer and the fast are the only measures that are more reliable in practice than they are in training. And that's because if you create them to matter, then information matters. And if information matters, people take it seriously. And if information matters and they take it seriously, then you get reliable and valid measurement. It's not about creating some measure in a laboratory that's reliable and valid and sticking it into the field and thinking that's going to work. That's not how it works. You have to create meaningful interactions with people that they value the information that you're collecting. And that's how you create reliable and valid measurement in the field. And I think once the scientists wrap their head around that, it will be okay. But I don't think they've wrapped their head around that quite yet in our space. And so I think that's going to be a, the next journey. So. Mm-hmm.
0: But when someone says they have concerns about the um, um, around the quality of data, you just described so fully that when a first cans is completed, when you first get to know someone, you haven't gotten to the real story because of you haven't built a relationship around trust, where this information is going. They might have told their story over and over again, so they're being protective, because that's what we should be doing. We should be protecting ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, there's someone out there
1: not. So, so, and Kate asked a question in the chat, which I want to address, but I think it's really important. So the way this stuff works is the way you engage stakeholders is through a consensus-based process. And so by creating a consensus-based assessment process, you bring in all the stakeholders and they can agree on something. They can all agree, yes, this is in fact the change. And that's how you actually establish change in this otherwise subjective environment, right? Because if you think about it, you know, if everybody's got uh, skin in the game, then they might have incentives to present themselves in different ways or to present the, somebody else in the different ways. And so by, by having a consensus and transparent process, you actually ensure honesty, uh, it's like anything else, you know, transparency and consensus um, promise honesty. And so the way you you partner and the way pieces allow you to partner is by allowing those consensus-based assessments that bring in your stakeholders. And then sharing information. So if you see anything.
0: in real time and, and being authentic, timely, and related to the quality of monitoring and measuring um, for the purposes of helping others and helping those that we're serving, that's, that is perfect. Now, if I can get it, I can't understand any other major stakeholder not getting it. So they probably don't want to get it. So that was interesting.
1: <laughs> well, I think we have a problem in our field that the business model and the clinical models are in competition with each other right? They, they don't fit, right? The business model is paying people to spend time with people and the actual work is helping people to change their lives. Mm-hmm. And so we do have a journey ahead. And this is the attempt of value-based contracting is to shift how you think about the business model mm-hmm. so that you make the business model actually about personal change. And so then you have incentive and everything lines up. Like I'm invariably saying, you know, the biggest obstacles to progress in public behavioral health are people who run public behavioral health agencies. And I understand their problem because they need to fit their, they need to pay their staff. They need to pay their therapists. And the only way you do that is by maximizing your billable hours. But that's at odds with actually collecting good information about people, about committing to managing impact, because sometimes that means saying goodbye, even if this person would be willing to come back again and fill a slot, right? It's it taking on more challenging cases. So I think that's kind of the shift that needs to happen. And I think we're like at the cusp. I think we're kind of um, fixing to get ready for a fairly significant change in the system. The other thing that's really fascinating, because you mentioned strengths in your question, Ken, we're finding repeatedly that the sustainable change in child welfare, in justice, in behavioral health, the sustainable change Mm -hmm. is strengths, building strengths. And this is weird because it's completely at odds with our model of you find people who have symptoms and you treat their problems and you treat those problems and they go away. That's not actually what appears to be happening. What appears to be happening is people learn to live with their challenges. And the way they learn to live with their challenges is they build resiliency. They build strengths. They build meaning in their lives. And that it's not about why people commit crimes. It's why people choose not to commit crimes. And the reason why you don't commit crimes is because you have a stake in your life. And if you can help people develop a stake in their life, that doesn't involve crime, then I to commit crimes, right? Same thing with substance use. It's not about what are the triggers of substance abuse, it's about what are the things in your life that will lead you to not be triggered to use substances. And it's a different way of thinking about it. But we're seeing increasingly that strength building is probably the most powerful. And that's going to take a bit of time to figure out how to build that into models. But that's the value of data, right? Because once you have data, once you can see these kind of things, you can begin to realize that we need to rethink how we're running the system because we really have really been doing it blind for 50 years. We've been doing it based on service receipt data and service receipt data is the least equitable data in the world. And so we have all these problems with lack of equity, but a lot of that is because we've created a system based on service receipt. And we know damn well that, uh, Your location and the color of your skin and uh, your culture influences service receipt. And so when you start baking in service receipt into all of your risk adjustments and all of your uh, policy kind of models, you end up baking in racism. You end up baking in bias because those statistics, those metrics are biased. And so anyway, so that's one of the values
0: of a person-centered approach. And that's that shift when you talk about total clinical outcomes management to the transformational collaborative outcomes management. I think people really need to know that when we think about transformation, it's, an, it's a very powerful word. And I remember you sharing with us um, when you came to visit and to, to offer um, support guidance in a statewide system is that you showed us Mike. I think that was the, the, uh, the uh, young person in the vignette that you showed. And you had a, you had a chart where you said that you know the reason why you don't want two or three needs only, it wouldn't give a complete story or a story map that the CANS is looking at helping to transform the lives of those individuals and those families. And this particular uh, portion of, of pieces for me was that aha moment that you want all the ratings to be as accurate as we can because the underlying needs are background. They're, they're gonna be things that we can't change but they certainly are things we need to know about. Needs to focus, certainly safety is the utmost uh, first stance. And then when we think about strengths to build or strengths to utilize in care planning, what you just said was so, like it resonated in my head and we can't work on everything at once, so needs in the background that we'll get to when the plan moves forward. That's how this has been created, uh, our person-centered intelligence solutions. Um, when you really take a, a deeper dive in this in this, this process of, of taking the cans or the community metrics tools that you're using and put it into a, a, a map, a story map, and this will show right firsthand that time one, time two, that the next time you do the, the, uh, um, the complete the cans or revise the cans is more appropriate, you can see progress. But it also, any technology should not be, well, I can't have any input the individuals that we serve and those who are doing the work should be able to move things around to make sure that we're keeping the data as as real as possible. Um, So for me, that was that aha moment to support um, the cans. And what you see on the bottom here is a narrative. It takes the twos and threes and puts them in a sentence format. So you can see with Malcolm Little here, what's going on and when the, cha- when the change of priority is given on needs that we're going to target, that outcome will shift. If, if it's getting them to school, but they haven't met their substance abuse challenges or being able to manage some of the, um, the, the, the attached emotions or feelings or behaviors uh, to the trauma, you're never going to get someone in school. You, you will, but then their behavior will get them sent back out. Um, so I think this is, for me, one of those moments where it all came together.
1: Um, yeah I, I like how uh, op platform handles the treatment planning approach because I think it's important um, one of the things we ran into problems with early days with uh, this approach is since it's the can the answer they're all designed at the item level so they're reliable on valid at the item level and you know you have these action levels of uh, you know act or act immediately or intensively and so people felt like compelled that it was a one for kind of thing and it's for every actual need, you had to have an action. But that's not true. And so figuring out how to prioritize really involves creating a causal model. And so, uh, you know, my favorite example of that, for those of you who are old-time cumulometric users and haven't looked at the action planning piece of of the work, I think you really want to do that. Um, But this, the, we require that now for trainers, they have to come up with their own action plan using the approach. So my favorite was from California. Um, and who knows, maybe the trainer did this stories on the call, who knows? Anyway, but so her story was a newcomer family who had just uh, moved. Uh, and you know how it is when you're a newcomer, you're an immigrant, right? So you, you're underemployed, right? And so dad had to work three jobs just to make ends meet. And so he's gone all the time, except Saturdays. Now, son had autism, but mom was on top of it. And so she got him into a good school program. She created a schedule for him during non-school hours, and he was doing well on every day except Saturday. And dad would come home, and like a good dad, he wanted to spend time with his son on the only day he had time to, but he wanted to do what he wanted to do, right? And his son had autism, and you know how kids are with autism. When their schedule is disrupted, they explode. So dad experiences son's opposition. So you got three different actual needs. You've got developmental intellectual, two, that's the autism. You've got the oppositional behavior, which is dad's experience of the son. And then you've got the caregiver knowledge, which is dad's understanding of the child. And then you've got a powerful strength. You know, mom is like a saint, right? So how do you put it together? Well, the way this trainer did is that Developmental intellectual is a background need. You're not trying to change the autism. The school's working with that. She's not going to touch that. She's a therapist. And she decided she's going to address caregiver knowledge. Mm -hmm. So she's going to work with dad to teach dad what it means for his son to have autism spectrum disorder. And she's going to use mom to help teach dad that because mom obviously clearly already gets it. And her theory would be that if she addresses the parent um, caregiver knowledge knowledge, need, then in fact, the oppositional behavior would go away. You go. So it it goes it shows you the complexity of change. And so we're really working towards when people actually use these kind of models, create, I call it the pool shot version of outcomes, because you should be able to create a theory of change. And then that theory of change will dictate exactly what items are likely to change. And that's actually what we should be holding as the definition of an outcome because this sort of notion that everything changes, right? That goes back average change on the CAFIS from a 70 to a 60 kind of thing. That's also nonsense, right? It's because it's going to be different for different people in different circumstances and being able to fine tune. This is how communometrics and global and, and goal attainment scaling find a point of convergence, right? Because the problem with goal attainment scaling is one person's goal is to go to college and the other person's goal is to brush their teeth every morning. And so how do you ever compare that? You can't. So with the structure of a communometric tool, you actually create this common language framework and you can actually have individualized goals that still fit into the common language framework. And it suddenly becomes analyzable to be mass customized that you can do that. Fantastic.
0: And when we think about the, the work that we do, knowing that we're not there just to, um, um to work with a machine shop or getting some piece together we're looking and working towards transforming the lives of those that we serve and that, that for me was a, a privilege uh, so the, the next question we have in terms of um the value of measuring strengths and needs now i think we we understand why strengths are very important but when we do it longitudinally um the the importance of, of maintaining accurate data, but also not kicking the cans down the road. I think that was the term that I, I first used and, and uh, heard rather, and, and uh, I try to use it as well. No, you don't want to do that. Um, but yeah, I do think it?
1: the key, the key. So when I first started doing this work, you know, the strengths movement was pretty you know, nascent um, and people just thought strengths were saying things, positive things, you know, and they, that strengths were the opposite of needs and that being strength based and then everybody, the mantra was, everybody has strengths. I call BS to that too. That's not true. And if you think about it, you know, when you're born, if you're lucky, you have one strength. When you're born, if you're lucky, you have a family that loves you. That's the only strength you're born with. Every other strength develops. And some of us, sadly, are not so lucky that we don't have a family that loves us either because we never had a family that loves us or we somehow lost that family who loves us. And so there are people without strengths. And if you have this mantra that everybody's got strength and you're actually working with somebody that doesn't have strengths, so you put in a position where you just make crap up. And so there's a big problem in the field where you'd read these records and you see people putting all sorts of crap in the strengths section in the assessment, like um, compliance, you know, child is compliant with treatment, <laughs> that's not yeah. a strength, unless you're trying to maximize those hours. So the worst I ever saw was a uh, residential program that had this kind of cut and paste mentality to their records. And for every single youth, it said, youth is attractive. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? I mean,
0: yeah.
1: I mean, either they had a very bizarre Admission criteria, and they're only accepting good looking kids, or they have this kind of kumbaya everybody's beautiful. I buy that everybody's beautiful, right? But okay, but that doesn't help you individualize care. Let's move on from that. And so, what we've learned, and I think the field is there too, is that having strengths is good, and that's when you do strength building, but building strengths is also good. In fact, it's sometimes more powerful. And the only way you can build strengths is when you first recognize that people don't have strengths. And so, building strengths is just as good as having strengths. And so, all four levels are meaningful mm-hmm. And
0: that's the why sequence. the data, yeah, the data needs to be clear and concise and okay. I love the fact that when we think of the um, um, the actual data itself some of the things that have been highlighted and, I, and I'm looking at the time I can't believe an hour can fly by so quickly um, and uh, but we, we, uh, we have here in these um, the person strengths or the support system strengths and exactly what you're saying. And the, the, how technology can can take this and, and put this into an action and getting away from someone looking, you know, uh, very, very In nice. So,
1: just- What I would say the take-home message, can is that technology can make the work easier. It, it makes it more efficient. There you go. And it doesn't change the work. It makes it more efficient. And unfortunately, some technologies actually take away from the work by making it less efficient. And historically, there was those problems. I think the strength of pieces is it gets it. It actually thinks from a TECOM perspective, and it actually makes the work more effective.
0: That's fantastic. And
1: that's the key with technology, that we know that tech- well-designed technology mm-hmm. can make our work more effective. Uh, and that's our responsibility. That's our wish. That's our aspiration. Um, and so I think... That's great. There, I can't tell you the number of times I've seen software systems that were designed from the perspective of the software developer or the compliance agency or the or the managers that wanted to see certain information, and mm-hmm. it ended up not being particularly helpful for people. Or the problem with not giving data back. And so I think you all have captured that. So, see,
0: and and I know um, folks from Idaho in particular. Um, with a family uh, organization. There was one person I spoke spoken to at the regional TCOM conference and uh, they found out I was part of a training institute. And um, she asked a really amazing question. She said, uh, do, you, do you ask families what types of trainings, what type of knowledge you need to have to do the work better? And uh, sadly, I couldn't say, yeah, it's not where we start at all. Um, mm-hmm. So again, our technologies should really mimic that where we are uh, using it to make the lives of those that we serve uh, uh, better. And those, yeah, were, I mean,
1: were the eventually worst. where we would go would be the idea that before you come in for care, there'd be a way for you to get online and prepare people to know the basics of your story um, and who to talk to, to get a fuller, you know, who are the other storytellers that should be talked to so that you actually hit the ground running. I mean, we, we sort of, think of uh, the system as starting at that first interchange, but it shouldn't, right? It actually should start before. I remember back in the day, um, Allegheny County would send out a Mm -hmm. family-friendly interview version of the cans before the first meeting so that families could read through it and say, this is the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about, which I think is exactly the right way of thinking about information is let's demystify it. Let's make it accessible. Let's create these kind of processes. anyway
0: so. And when you mentioned Allegheny County, being part of a collaborative, you can actually put a face and a name yeah, locations okay. that are being served. So Robin Orlando and that yeah. amazing
1: group, um, I, I, there's some wonderful stuff. <laughs> yes. And
0: um and, and just to kind of get into some final thoughts, because if technology is a is a, an added burden or an added layer taken away from the work, it's not helpful. And given like you said, the um, uh, the pandemic is certainly Brought things to life, the use of technology, but also the inequities. So, final thoughts around health equity. Um, how does TCOM and CANS help ensure that we're all mindful, which is again the first step, be mindful of health inequity, but also practicing health equity? Put it
1: to- Oh, yeah, this is, this, that's a great question. So, we just had a meeting with uh, some uh, tribal representatives in California, and they have a, a discovery model. They have a process by which they get to know the Kids and families that they're working with. Mm-hmm. And they said, Well, how is the CANS going to interfere with this? And we said, Not at all. You should continue to do what you think is the best way to discover. All the CANS is, all a communometric measure is, is coding the story. How you get the story should be done in a way that's culturally congruent. And I think what happens is we create this kind of nonsense notion that asking these 50 questions in this order is the way you get to some truth. Well, that's about as culturally insensitive as you could possibly be, right? Because the same sentence is going to mean something different to different people with different backgrounds. You know, if you're a young black man in the United States and you get nervous around police, you're smart, right? Now, maybe if you're an old white guy, you're guilty, right? So, right. So you really need to, if you're a member of a Pentecostal church, you go to church and talk in tongues, you're not psychotic. But if you see somebody in an emergency department babbling in words that nobody understands, okay, well, maybe that's psychotic, right? And so you really have to have this cultural lens. That's why the fourth key characteristic of a communometric measure is you understand people's culture. And what that really means is you approach the discovery process from a culturally open, a culturally uh, expressive, um, a culturally responsive perspective that you do the kind of discovery that makes sense within the culture of the people that you're working with. And I think that makes this approach, and we've actually got a number of analyses that demonstrate when you do this kind of approach, you actually can eliminate disparities, right? Because the disparities are, come from making decisions about things other than the common themes of people's stories that influence people's decisions. It's making false attributions. It's the bias kind of heuristics, right? So. That's a it's great, like why police kill some people because they have in their back of their mind that person has a profile that makes me think that they are dangerous to me, right? They don't know about that one person they're talking to. They're making an a, a assumption based on bias, right? And so you really have to help people get back to this person in this situation at this time. And if you make decisions based on this person in this situation at this time, then you're not going to have nearly as much bias. Absolutely. And
0: again, I, I this hour flew by, and but there's so much information that you've shared. So thank you. And please thank the entire team at the University of Kentucky at the Center for Innovation and Population Health. We cannot thank you enough for taking time out and doing something like this, a town hall, but the, the sharing, the collaboration, that's the spirit of TCOM that you've you've instilled in in the larger collaborative, and it's been used all over the world. And a CANS tool is, is a metrics tool. It's a TCOM tool. It takes in the whole person. It takes amazing um, um, time to get to know someone. But again, when we have all these systems that have bits of information, that information following that person so that... That's the first heuristic, Kim, so...
1: I love Sometimes it, you have to slow down to speed up. I was
0: yeah. just going
1: to, and I'm yeah. getting, hopefully people signed up. <laughs> so yeah. So go to the, go to the YouTube channel. I, I, I hope that you all, so you would all do me all a big favor, a solid, if you'd subscribe to the YouTube channel, because we get more control over the channel with more subscriptions. So if you haven't yet, please do. I would appreciate it. I would be grateful.
0: Well, again, John, Samantha, and I, and everyone at Opica and the thank entire you, audience today want to thank you and thank you for all that you've done, all that you're going to do, and looking forward to partnering collaborating uh, with everyone in the future. So stay tuned. Uh, that we have hey, Paul.
1: Uh, nice to see you.
0: All right, take I'm, care. I'm just and, talking to people saying hi in the chat. So. Oh,
1: please, yes, and and uh, and thank you all. <laughs> stay safe and uh. Uh, thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. I'm happy to do this whenever. So I, I love the work you guys are doing. So anything I can do to be supportive, I'm happy to do it.
0: Well, thank you so much, John.
1: Take care. Did I say I love pieces to Mises? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. I love it. Well, thank you. All thank right. You. See y'all. Take, Take care. care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Innovation and Care Collaboration podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, or Google, and join us each week as we invite in thought leaders in health and human services to discuss the latest trends in healthcare and technology.